today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what next for the Liberals and moving on from the Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal? What was the motive behind kidnapping a 22-year-old Chinese national in Markham, who luckily has been found alive? This ain't your grandfather's OSPCA. Their roles are changing. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Liberals defeated an opposition party request for the Ethics Committee to study the SNC-Lavalin situation. What's next? Where does this go from here? My goodness, I'm sure Tim Powers is tired of talking to us. Uh, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman Summa Summa Strategies, has served as an advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers, is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scotty. Before we talk about this, uh, I got to tell you, my mother used to run the SPCA in Newfoundland and Labrador, and she was also for the SPCA, what they called a special constable. So she, along with the police, did all those animal cruelty investigations. I hope uh, Ontario doesn't scrub doing them, because one of the things that becomes pretty obvious when you do some of those investigations is the link between those who are cruel to and abuse animals and and other crimes so think big doug ford think big on this one all That's right my, well, my political advocacy for the day for on it. a completely other su- complete other subject you are always allowed tim powers um uh, considering my goodness all the work that you help us with uh, what do you what was your thought process on, on what happened yesterday um you, you know, the Justice Committee uh, pushing the date to the budget, then announcing they're going to close it down. Uh, then, well, we can maybe do this through the Ethics Committee. Then the Ethics Committee obviously uh, votes this down. I think what I'm finding interesting in all of this is there's some prominent female liberals who are almost daring Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jade Philpott to speak out in other means. Uh, it seems odd that some are asking for them to speak out, yet they're shutting down every mechanism possible to let them do it. Yeah, well, let's start on on that ethics committee, first of all. So just so your listeners understand, every committee but one in the House of Commons, if my memory is correct, and it's a procedural committee where they wouldn't go, is uh, dominated by uh, the Liberals. Right. Uh, so they have more members. So they can control all the committees. It's clear that the word has gone down. Uh, that uh, the committee, a committee, whether it be ethics, justice, or any other potential committee, isn't where this uh, story is going to continue at this point and where these former ministers are going to be able to speak. So that appears to be a clear pattern. Uh, Though it was interesting to see the committee chair who doesn't vote uh, in these meetings, he also, a liberal, Nate Erskine-Smith, come out and say he does think that um, there should be a platform where uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and and perhaps Jane Philpott can be heard. And as you described, equally, you've had a number of different um, senior female liberal MPs come out and say, hey, why don't you just speak, starting this great game of political chicken. I'm... And that's not surprising, because you asked me last week, where did I think this was going to go? Well, God, I'm right for once, Scott. Hmm. We now have caucus members uh, coming out and going after Jane Philpott, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and and also, you know, daring them to speak, while at the same time, I think that shows a bit of discontent in caucus. The prime minister's got to be uh, worried about, because the last point I'll make uh, is that we now have Bill Morneau, I believe, saying caucus is going to sort out what happens. Jody Wilson-Rabel and Jane Philpott. So it's become a caucus drama, among other things as well. 
Uh, and every day uh, the story drags out. There's more questions than answers, and and popularity continues to drop for the prime minister. How long are they just going to let this peter out? I know I've asked you this question a bazillion times. Uh, it, it just appears that they're not really giving her any avenue, so they don't want her to speak, clearly. Um, so so what happens now? Are they hoping it just peters out? I guess they're, they're hoping... You know, you're going to get sick of this conversation. Other people are going to. I'm get already sick of, sick of the conversation. Uh, and then that is <laughs> that 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 it'll that it'll go away. Um, that that now seems to be their game plan. But we know there's it's certainly going to be a flare up whenever Jody Wilson-Raybould submits her written statement, which she says she's going to submit, which is going to present evidence. So that will lead to more questions. We know the story took a. An in, a new interesting twist this week as someone who looks like they're connected to the Prime Minister's office, we'll never know for sure, leaked a story about a disagreement that Jody Wilson-Raybould apparently had with the Prime Minister over a Supreme Court uh, appointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Justice Joyal out of Manitoba, the appointment never took place. Justice uh, Joyal, in response to the leak of the story about what actually happened, uh, was uh, <laughs> none too pleased, it seemed, and noted in his public commentary that this seemed to be a story that was leaking for other purposes. You've had, I think it was the Manitoba Bar Association and others come out and condemn whoever leaked it, and led now to a bunch of stories about whether is this more proof that the liberals don't respect the rule of law they're prepared to leak these highly confidential discussions uh to try and change the channel and smear jody wilson rabel so if this was coordinated by the government or was coordinated by allies of the prime minister that seems to be blowing up in their face the only place where they seem they seem to be getting a little bit of traction among some columnists and others who have been around for a while, it's not to call them old, uh, but they've seen a lot, and then, and then there's a bit of a narrative emerging. Well, there's clearly an agenda here. There's clearly a motive to take down the prime minister, because why else would they do that? The liberals may want to push that and rally all of their people behind them, but they they seem to be doing it in such a way that they get themselves in more trouble than create good. <laughs> it, it's odd. It seems every day there's another angle to it. Uh, are they are, are they trying to force Jody Wilson-Raybould to another avenue to speak, or do they just want her out? I think they just want her out, because I, I think she and Jane Philpott still have potency as liberal MP. Uh, and the prime minister knows himself if he kicks them out, uh, that's, that, that, that keeps the story going, and it may impact embolden them and and empower them and build them up in status. He may be hoping that they decide to step out on their own, which will reflect a narrative some have tried to push, that they're you know, self-interested, and this was all just a way of getting back at Justin Trudeau because they didn't like the way he made decisions in relation to them. I'm not sure either one of those individuals is a traditional politician who's going to fall into a traditional trap. If, in fact, they uh, do speak their mind, will it not just look more like an internal squabble and then therefore the public more apt to just let it go? If Sorry, if they don't speak their mind or if they do speak if their they mind? If they do speak their mind. 
Um, again, it depends what they say, right? I, I, I think this is why Jody Wilson-Rabel's made a point of that she's got evidence. So what she is saying, I assume, by making that uh, argument is, look, I can refute some of what was said. So this isn't just about me being upset about being reassigned. It isn't me losing a, an argument with the prime minister. It's me saying what I've said all along that, uh, the way they conducted themselves, uh, the PMO and, and Mr. Wernick and, and others, um, wasn't right. I mean, it, it's hard in the end to just say this was a dispute between two individuals. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, when we've had so much carnage already, right? Mm-hmm. Two ministers, not one. It wasn't one minister who stepped down. It was two. We've lost the principal secretary. We've lost Michael Wernick. We have... And McClellan appointed to look at how the operations of of government work in relation to the attorney general, the justice minister, and balancing all of that out. That in and of itself is proof, I think, that this is more than just a difference of conversation, despite the prime minister's protestation uh, to the contrary. Has there been any sort of speculation about what the secret is? Any speculation (laughs) about what... What she has that is so damaging to him that he will not let her go? God, you only have a two-hour show, and this is Ottawa. I mean, <laughs> why the sun doesn't come up at a particular time or goes down at another time. Other than the stuff that you've heard, I haven't heard anything new. That you know, the, the, Again, I go back to just before the shuffle in January. We've had three, so it's hard to keep track. I appreciate, but the one that moved, uh, Wilson Rabel from Justice Attorney General to Veterans Affairs Minister. The only thing that was ever coming out then, the night before the shuffle, when they start to talk to people like me and others, is, oh, she's difficult to deal with. She's difficult to deal with. The, the, the difficulty was never grounded in any one particular issue. It was described as, uh, you know, it's hard to get things through her department. It's hard to get her on side. We need to put her in a place uh, where um, she isn't able to, to slow down the machinery of government. I'm paraphrasing the, the, the last bit right. there. So beyond difficulty, and I, I've never heard anything more substantive than that. So uh, is that that bad? I mean, so what? Let this run. Like, just air it out. Get it out. I mean, it, it just seems. Exactly. It just seems that all of that isn't as damaging as what is going on now. So, uh, so Justin Trudeau must think it's something else, uh, because, again, I agree with you. If it was just personalities, we all work in worlds where we have different people who approach things differently. And when you're in a, a business like government, uh, uh, regardless of who's in party, it would be good, actually, to have people uh, who aren't yes people, who say yes to everything, who you know, maybe they ask the wrong questions or they scrutinize things too much in certain steps, but it. it forces you to lift your game, right, mm-hmm. uh, if you're making a case for something. So, yeah, if it's not that bad, why not let it out? I, I don't know if they're afraid that uh, somehow Jody Wilson-Rabel or even, even Jane Philpott is going to, you know, share some state secrets about further about how the business of government is conducted, and that will seem more unseemly to the public and impact them. But, man, they got to find a better way to deal with this, because this started in February uh, April comes on us next Monday. We're in, you know, well into a second l- month, soon moving to a third month of this being the dominant story. 
Do you think this is about, and again, we're just speculating, do you think this is about rule of law issues such as uh, what's been happening with the SNC-Lavalin affair, or do you think this is image issues? He's not the guy everyone thought he was. He's not the feminist everyone thought he was. He's not the huge supporter of the Indigenous community that everybody thought he was. Yeah, I think a lot of it is brand issue. I, I, it's, you know, even Jody Wilson-Raybould herself has said she doesn't believe there was any criminality or anything approaching criminality, but that brand is so important to Justin Trudeau, uh, I think, you know, they will do anything to protect it, so they've tried to change the frame to uh, a dispute between ambitious politicians, because you remember as it related to Jane Philpott, I think she said this in her interview with Paul Wells, there was a story floating around here, and I remember people telling me, oh, Jane Philpott wants to leave the Ontario Liberal Party. Really? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know Jane Philpott at all, but uh, I don't see her as being somebody who came into politics uh, to go back and lead Ontario's third party and try and revitalize. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what happens now? Is the ball in Jody Wilson-Raybould's court now that uh, the Ethics Committee, you know, first the Justice Committee, now the Ethics Committee has decided, no, this isn't going to be a platform. Uh, what What are the other platforms? Is this well, now other... up to Jody Wilson-Raybould to decide? Well, and Jane Philpott, for that matter. So, uh, what the supporters of the Prime Minister have said, and many of those prominent uh, Liberal MPs, including uh, the Minister up around your way, Karina Gould, uh, go into Parliament and speak. So yes, there is this thing called parliamentary privilege, which is the supreme privilege. It overrides all others, where they could stand up on a point of order and, and speak uh, what their truth as they would like in whatever manner they would like it to be. Um, but again, you've had both Wilson Rabel and uh, Philpot say, "Hey, yeah, but you know, we're conscious. We're ethical people. We respect what we did in cabinet. We need to have a waiver." So I think that battle is going to continue to play out. Parliament's not sitting this week, as the Prime Minister and his team were trying to sell the budget, but that's not going super well because this is a story that keeps boomeranging back. This and canola and the fight with China. Hmm. So uh, I think uh, we'll see some more drama next week. I think uh, I, I noted today that Lisa Raitt has written uh, one of the overriding judicial committees to complain about the way um, the story of uh, Joyal and his apparent Supreme Court appointment was brought out and gone after the government on that. So that's a new emerging storyline. And the return of caucus next week, all caucuses will be an emerging storyline. Will there be more pressure on the prime minister as we, a week from now, approach their weekly caucus meeting to to remove uh, these two uh, former uh, cabinet ministers from his liberal caucus? How do you think uh, the party is reacting to this? Is this dividing the party? Is yeah, it- it's frustrating. Look, I, uh, I uh, like all of us, know people in, in the Liberal mm-hmm. Party, and I know people who've worked hard for that party, and they're frustrated because the conversation you and I are having is the conversation that comes before the budget. It's the conversation that comes before, you know, uh, what things look like in the summer. This is, this is the conversation that Liberals are having 
about their party, and that's not the conversation they want to be having going uh, into an election, which you know creeps closer and closer by the day. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. And fight that battle for the SPCA, Scott. It's in your hands now because you don't want my mother calling you. Let uh, me uh, tell you. All right. We have their lawyer coming up at 135. <laughs> all right. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. Tim. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A bizarre situation in uh, Markham uh, that had a lot of people on the edge of their seat wondering how uh, how this was going to uh, end and, and what the motives are. Uh, police say a 22-year-old Chinese national who was kidnapped from a Markham parking lot garage uh, has been found safe in Gravenhurst. Um, York Regional Police have uh, thanked the people for uh, their help, but apparently uh, the man walked up to a home on Doe Lake Road before 9 o'clock in Gravenhurst, knocked on the door. Uh, The homeowner found him, called police, uh, was then taken to hospital for uh, minor injuries. Um, The police say that they found him in good health. Uh, authorities uh, say he was kidnapped around 6 o'clock in the underground condominium garage located at 15 Waterwalk Drive near uh, Highway 7 in Birchmount in Markham. Um, the victim was with a female friend and three men of who was, uh, one was armed with like a taser, uh, came up and uh, exited a, a minivan and uh, zapped him and then they, they took him. That was that. Uh, no ransom, no more contact, and then all of a sudden found uh, in Gravenhurst yesterday. Bizarre scenario. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer. RossMcLeanSecurity.com, and you can check out his Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics. He's with us now. Ross, your thoughts on this? This is very bizarre. Well, it's bizarre, but it's but it's certainly following a, a script, Scott. And if nothing else, at least we know that the young man is out and safe i understand he's out of hospital after being checked out for his small injuries so it is bizarre what do you mean by script well it it looks very practice we've seen uh chinese national nationals particularly ones who are wealthy and have uh, show off their wealth apparently this young man was uh, from a family that had some means he drove very exotic expensive cars a rolls royce and a lamborghini and he he dressed from the high end of stores that you and I look at, then walk by and go to the one next door to buy stuff. You know, so he was certainly someone of wealth, and someone maybe thought that they could find something. I know the police are saying uh, no ransom, but I, I think that's yet to be determined what may have happened in this case. So, uh, do you think this was a well-organized uh, uh, attack, or or somebody who just thought, "Hey, here's an an opportunity to get some money," and, and it just went horribly wrong? Uh, there was certainly some premeditation to it. You know, one of the things that's interesting about it is they stole a van, they stole a plate for a van, uh, they used a Tazar-type uh, weapon uh, to use it. But what they did, you can see some of the videos of this online when you look for it, when uh, when police or some other agencies go and do renditions and they use vans like this, you can see them online as to how they work. They roll up with a van, the door opens, the people get out, shock the person, drag them in, take off, and drive away right away. And so it certainly looked like these people prepared. They were dressed to cover their faces. They had the taser uh, there to be able to use. I'm not sure. I haven't heard that there being, uh, was any firearms that were seen, which would certainly reduce their um, the charges if they get caught for not being firearms. But they whisked the person, took them away. 
And uh, it's a place where a lot of these things usually take place at the home residence or at someone's place of work, or in this, this young man's case would have been at his school. So uh, anything on the suspects, anything on uh, the people that are still remaining? Well, the, the police are looking, and they've been hot on the trail since. Uh, you know, I'll note this, the still picture that the, uh, that the police put out of the van, I noticed down in the bottom corner of it, if, the, if it's what it relates to, it says Panic One is sort of the labeling for the camera down in the basement. So I wonder if this building, apparently it's fairly high-end. I'm sure it would have had great security uh, camera coverage at the entrances, the exits, the parking uh, exits when you go to get in the stairwells to go to the elevators, and perhaps they even gave out panic buttons to its residents that they could have hit that might have activated the cameras that captured some of this. So the police are going to have lots of coverage of the cameras uh, of the people. They're going to have uh, whatever descriptions they can get. They've recovered the van, so that's going to tell them a lot where the plate was stolen from, where the van was stolen from. Of course, if there's any mistakes of any DNA or fingerprints or things that were left uh, in the van uh, that people didn't think about, because even though they might have practiced, uh, the best uh, the best bad guys always make mistakes. So they've got that, and now we've had the young man turn up up north, and the police have got that area more or less sealed off, and they'll be they're checking every vehicle that comes out of the area. They'll be looking at CCTV. They'll be looking at uh, cell phone uh, usage in the area and all of those things. So they'll have lots to run and track this down on, Scott. Any idea how he got free? Did they just let him go? Well, nobody's saying. Apparently, with the one witness who saw him that he came up to indicated that he saw some cuts on his knees, uh, a little bit of duct tape that was stuck to his hoodie uh, sort of thing, and some cuts apparently to his arms, so indicating he would have been bound in some fashion and put down on his knees. Now, the police are, are saying that they put out in their, in their releases to let, let the person go and be done with it, and they're hoping that they're saying that caused them to release him uh, and let him go. But uh, we'll have to see. I said there's been no talk of any ransom demand, but that's you know something that, that happens quite often. And, and in these day and ages, uh, you know, if you're in South America, they, they take you to the ATM and start emptying out your you know your bank account with your card. But in these day and ages too, don't forget you've got a young man like this may have online banking, the ability to do wire transfers, and and other things. So the police will be looking at all that as well. Uh, so we don't know if ransom was a part of this or not then. I wouldn't expect. The police are saying no demands. Right. But I, I would also expect, though, that you're not going to announce that there was a successful uh, ransom demand. That's not good for business uh, for doing it. But, you know, I will note, don't forget, uh, last summer we had some uh, kidnappings that went on with just the gangs in Toronto. So not Asian or student-related. Gangs were kidnapping other gang members, tying them up taking them down to condos, beating them up, demanding ransoms, taking photos of them, and those sort of things. So uh, I expect that someone figured this was a good way to make money and felt this was a good target. And the police said they did arrest one person in relation to this, Mm -hmm. interviewed them and let them go. My suspicion it would be the first thing you're looking for, to some degree, is motive. So not knowing any of this, I'm sure they would have interviewed the friends that that, uh, this young man has, and found out if he had any lifestyle issues, gambling, drugs, etc. That would certainly tell you something. If he had anybody who had beefs with him or had said something uh, mean to him, or that was fighting him or sort of an arch enemy, that would lead the police to go look at somebody. 
So the police are certainly following all the threads that are there, and they seem to be on it pretty hard. Could this just be a robbery? Uh, like you said, I mean, obviously he, he he was a student, but had like a Rolls Royce and a Lamborghini and, and Land Rover and such in his uh, in his parking garage. Could it be that people just thought, oh, you know, we'll grab him and uh, throw him into the van and we'll see how much we can get out of an ATM or this, that, or the other? I mean, could this just be a robbery as opposed to a kidnapping? Well, they, it certainly was a kidnapping. There's no doubt that it was a kidnapping. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they they what they went with the. By that I mean ransom. Him. By that I mean yeah, in, in holding yeah. ransom. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I, I would have thought that this one looks a little bit more thought out, and you know the building that you're going to and who you're looking at, um, and who you're taking. I mean, uh, this was a young man of means, uh, so I don't think it was uh, just as simply as take him to the ATM. You wouldn't use three guys for that. There's limits on your ATM withdrawals and other things, right? right so. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think we'll find out more. He's out now. We'll see if he has anything to contribute, if uh, these bad guys said anything to him or there's some things he could pick up from where he was. We'll find out about that. Have we heard anything in regard to what the victim has said to police? Uh, is he helping police, uh, cooperating, um, anything on that? Well, the Any reason to think he isn't? <laughs> no, well, there's no reason to think that he isn't, but, yeah. but there, are, there have been issues before with, uh, with kidnappings uh, that have been going on, but particularly with Chinese students all over. There's been uh, fake kidnappings. There's been threats of kidnappings for uh, for people. They will There will be gangs who call up the parents over in China and say they have kidnapped their child, when in fact they haven't, and they're at, they'll ask for money. So there, there's some different things like that. I was reading about one case in Montreal uh, where the gang called up someone, threatened them, and told them, uh, to fake their own kidnapping, otherwise their family would be harmed back in China. Hmm. And then, if you like, this is just crazy, Scott, but once the person faked their own kidnapping, put out a video, they take the video from them and send it to their actual relatives and say, here's, we've kidnapped this person, now you send us money. Yeah. So, and I guess there's just a real disconnect and distance when you're, you know, from China to Canada, language, culture, all of these things, that it's, uh, it's they're a community that can be found to be taken advantage of. Uh, apparently when this, uh, abduction happened, uh, he was with a friend. Do we know anything more about, I believe it was a female he was with at the time? Uh, female. So the, the police will be talking to her to find things out. There's, there's always the concern too, that someone on the inside is setting someone up or gives a signal so that you know when someone's coming home, if he came home at his regular time, if this was after school or something, or if he was followed there, the police will be looking at all that. They'll be looking at all the surveillance video around perhaps tracking if they're able to what was on his cell phone prior to this as to where he was, calls he would have had, and certainly what the young lady may have been in touch with or in contact as well. The police are pretty good at keeping uh, their eyes open on all things and not getting uh, too locked in when it comes to these bizarre ones like this. I'm sure they're looking at every possible threat. Are you surprised that uh, they took him but didn't take her? I mean, she watched the whole thing go down, so theoretically she's a witness. She's, she's a witness, but they're all covered up. It would have happened fast, so it's hard for people to say when they see things like this. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I used to do protection for, for very, very wealthy people, we'd make sure when we were going out places that we didn't have a whole lot of flash. We wouldn't have uh, insignias on cars and, you know, uh, even vanity license plates and things like that. We'd look as nondescript as possible so that you wouldn't become a, um, a threat if you were under attack. And whenever you have a lot of money, 
uh, you're always a target for being under attack, particularly if you're flashing it. So um, that's I'm sure that this young man, I mean, when you're, someone rolls up to school in a Rolls Royce, yeah. people notice. <laughs> really? Um, uh, <laughs> are you surprised we haven't heard more from the victim or their family or even police as to their side of the story or what happened or even how this person escaped or was released? Well, I think I think we're not going to hear anything for a bit because I'm pretty sure the police will have some very, very solid leads to be working on. I mean, one of the things these days, and you never know how well they can work out, is the, is the police canines. I'm sure they're going through the areas using their noses and looking at stuff and, and trying to figure out. I can never get around how much those uh, dogs do to help solve crimes. But right right now, I'm sure they're running stuff down. And as I said, these bad guys may think they're pretty bad, but it's amazing how fast uh, police can stitch together a case and how well the different forces work together on things like this. So, uh, you know, these bad guys may have practiced and had their things thought through, but they haven't thought everything through, I'm sure. So hopefully we'll hear something from the police in terms of an arrest or, or some news about what's going on with this case. Does this complicate things because due to the fact that the person's not a Canadian citizen, they're a Chinese national here coming from another country, obviously a wealthy family here to study. How does that add to this layers to this investigation? Well, the trick with, the trick there will be working with the family to find out you know, what do they know? What do they trust? I mean, you don't know a lot of the times when you send your kids off to other countries to go study, the culture is going to be different. Maybe you've lived different. Um, and who knows what the background of the family is? Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know any of that. But, you know, they came over here right away. So the police will certainly be working with them, comforting them and finding out what was going on and see if there was any other attempts t- towards this family at another time and run those things down. But it sure looks to me like this is some some gang who got a bit of an idea. They saw somebody with some money. They knew about it, and they put together a little plan from watching too much TV and watching videos and decided to execute the plan. Now, what's taken place in the time since that young man was taken? If there was any uh, money that was transferred, once again, that's something that can be run down by the police. I mean, uh, it's pretty hard to outrun the cops these days. Hmm. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, when you see these things that take place like this, I mean, shootings are one thing. Uh, we see a lot of shootings where the bad guys are getting away with the shootings when they're rolling up and shooting someone and taking off. But when you're coming up to do a kidnap and doing something else, you're leaving more telltale signs. And I think the recovery of the van and the stolen plate are going to be a big part of it, as well as what this young man can tell them. Uh, do we know anything more about the family, their source of wealth in China? Well, that's a question everybody always has about China. Where does you know where do people's wealth come from? There's uh, China has got more millionaires than anywhere else on earth. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I've talked to somebody once who spent some time over there, and they said when people say that uh, China took over Hong Kong, it's backwards. Hong Kong took over China, right. and that's when China got into all of the manufacturing and all of the work and all the exports and everything else. There's a lot of very wealthy people, and a lot of times they like to get their money out of China and bring it over here. We're hearing about that with the real estate being bought and, and you know, and everything else. So uh, they could just be another run-of-the-mill multimillionaire Chinese family. And it was just this young man that was the flashpoint. So any reason to believe that organized crime is involved with this? Or do you think, as you suggested earlier, um, you know, a flashy target, someone who's uh, flashing their wealth around, uh, crime of opportunity, if they see the, if they see the chance, they're going to take it. Do you think it's, it's something like that, or do you think it's, it's far more organized? 
I, I think when we when we talk organized crime, this is the classic version of it that we talk about. You know, being the mob and the hell's angels and and things like that, or even Asian organized crime gangs. This one to me looks more like it's just uh, uh, going to be gang activity. Is going to be my guess. Yeah. Some gangs were running. Like I said the Toronto gangs, the case, the the gangs, they got a taste of kidnapping uh, for money. They they had a taste of that the last little while. And what happens is as soon as these criminals all learn from each other, they find out about what works and how it makes money and and where might be a good opportune target. So the word gets around. So this is certainly something the police will be tracking to watch to see if we end up getting getting more of these. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you about that's totally unrelated, but we did a story on this, uh, uh, I guess, a week or two ago in regard to crime tourism, where gangs are coming in or people are coming in as tourists on tourist permits, visas and such for like a, a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Uh, doing a whole pile of uh, B&Es and then jumping back on the plane and out. How much do you know about that? Yeah, that's a for a long time, uh, getting that. Used to get roaming uh, roaming gangs that would come over and do it. They do everything from doing pickpockets to doing uh, mass shoplifting in areas, uh, or even just the simple ones. They would come over and do the old walk up to you to the corner and say, I'm sorry, but my child is back in the car. I'm out of gas. Can you give me $20 sort of thing? you know, to do the begging sort of thing. But you, you do see that, uh, and this is a more global world, easier to get around. And so you do see things like that, where we've got uh, these criminals coming with crime tourism. Uh, maybe that's why it's better that the police uh, are getting better and our border security are get, getting better at looking at who's coming out of our country. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, and the Facebook page is Crime, Power, and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario SBCA has turned down an agreement, uh, uh, a agreement has turned down a government request to continue enforcing cruelty laws, but did not, uh, but did offer a three-month extension uh, with other duties. The lawyer for the Ontario SBCA is with us now, Brian Schiller, and he is on the line now. Brian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Brian, can you give us a bit of history here? Uh, how did we get to where we are? Uh, and give us some, uh, some history on, on the Ontario SBCA and their involvement in uh, enforcing cruelty laws. Sure. So the OSPCA was actually founded 146 years ago. And its primary work, and I would say approximately 80% of it, is in areas other than enforcement. So we deal a lot with... Uh, animal advocacy, humane education, sheltering, fostering and adoptions, crisis intervention, uh, mobile services. There's a whole slew of services we offer to help animals. It wasn't until about 100 years ago that we started being involved in enforcement and then received powers to uh, uh, obtain warrants and lay charges in the, in the 1950s. Um, recently, uh, in, in January of this year, the court... Uh, the Ontario Superior Court ruled that the provisions of the legislation that allow for the OSPCA to be the police for animals is unconstitutional because uh, there's no government oversight of the Ontario SPCA. And uh, so that brought the issue into focus. And uh, in March, we advised the government that we thought it best that we no longer enforce legislation and move into a full-time support role of from our enforcement services, turning them into 
support services for uh, police in investigating animal welfare issues. So this was a question of authority and whether legally you had uh, the rights to be doing this? That's in large part correct. For us, it was other issues as well. We're a private charity. Right. Um, we, we are, our officers are not trained the way police officers are trained. They don't carry guns. Mm-hmm. They uh, don't work in large groups in situations of danger. In fact, most of our officers throughout this province would go to investigations alone. We have had many incidents of assaultive behavior and extremely tense behavior on the part of those being investigated. And we, ha- we have had instances of outright vicious assaults. And uh, we, we have found that it's escalated over time. And that was also a primary concern of ours, that we're not in the policing business and we uh, need to focus our attention on better protecting animals and not having to worry about our uh, officers' safety. Um, when are the police called in? When does it become a police issue over an SPCA issue? As you said, you, you're there to, in, you know, or were there to enforce these laws. But if, if things get out of hand, when, when does it become a police issue? It's always been a police issue under the the, uh, the relevant Animal Protection Act that's in place now. Um, while it gives powers to OSPCA agents to uh, act as police, it also makes clear that police are responsible for that duty as well and have all the powers that the OSPCA has and, and then some. And um, in fact... For uh, the majority of the province, the police do that service because the OSPCA uh, is not resourced to uh, handle the entire province. So is this more of a resource issue or a legalities issue? Um, It's more of a legalities issue and a safety issue. The resourcing theoretically could have been something that was worked out, although I'll say that um, up until 2012, there was no government funding for enforcement. And it was only at that time that some funding came into place. And we've always said that the funding wasn't uh, anywhere near enough to properly provide province-wide service, which was the expectation. So uh, moving forward, is there a model in place to, to cover off what the SBCA was doing? So... And and just to be clear so that your listeners understand that um, while our contract ends uh, at the end of this month, a new contract will be in place as an extension of the old one through till the end of June of this year. So it will be business as usual on enforcement where the police will be doing enforcement as they've always done and the OSPCA will as well. And uh, we have a proposed model for the government, at least on the interim Uh, until new legislation can be adopted, which is something that could take some time, where the OSPCA operates as a support enforcement service for the the policing agencies. And then if the the government basically has uh, two fundamental choices going forward in adopting new legislation, one of them can have that the police are doing the enforcing, or they can deputize um, uh, individuals Uh, to be part of a policing force solely with respect to animals, so that their their function would be similar to what OSPCA officers does. And and, and across the province, 
it varies from part of me across the country. It varies from province to province on uh, on on how that enforcement happens. So as it stands now, um, can uh, OSPCA lay charges? Can they arrest? So technically, the OSPCA does not arrest. Right. They 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 do charge. Right. Frequently, if they're in a situation where uh, they have to deal with uh, somebody who is being charged. If if they need to be taken into custody, the police will do that. And and in most situations where we execute a warrant, police are in attendance on the execution of that a warrant to keep the peace. So, so we th- work with them hand in hand now. Right, and that would be going on in the past as well, correct, or would it not? Yes. So oh, yes, it has gone on. That's how it's worked. So moving forward, what changes? How does this? So uh, you will not be involved in that anymore. Is that is that is that the uh, indication moving forward? Uh, uh, effective uh, the end of June. Right. Uh, the the policing aspect of uh, animal enforcement will no longer be in the hands of the OSPCA, and until new legislation is drafted. Um, the, it'll be in the hands of police officers who we have worked with all along and will continue to work with to assist them in their investigations. We just won't be the ones obtaining warrants and executing warrants and right. laying charges. Right. We'll do all the other work for them, all the heavy lifting, if you will. Uh, other jurisdictions doing this right, doing a better, uh, have a better model? Uh, other jurisdictions have better models, for sure. I, I, I think our... Our uh, model has been uh, good, save and except for the fact that a private charity was doing the enforcing. Um, the laws can be a lot better. I would point to uh, New York, where they have the ASPCA, so that's the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, working hand-in-hand with a police task force that deals with animal cruelty investigations. And uh, that model has been in place for several years now and has worked quite well. We're, in fact, going to be going down shortly to watch them at work and uh, learn from them on how we can better offer our support services to our policing agencies. Is this just one of those issues that over time has become too much for the OSPCA, uh, you know, whether it's resources or, or just the activity of, of this sort of related crime? Um there, there are always too many instances of animal abuse out there, and um, I, I think it's more a function of the fact that the, um, the OSPCA has to focus on the welfare of animals, not the policing of individuals. The focus on policing uh, what uh, the, the rights and wrongs of individuals should be in the hands of policing agencies that are regulated through government legislation and are accountable through government legislation, not in the hands of a private charity. So this has just gotten too big, too much for for them to handle, basically. It's it's more of it's not a question of it, it being too too big. It's a question of the fact that it's just not the right model. Right, it can right. be done better, and mm-hmm. it can be done more safely. How do police organizations feel about this? Well, I guess you'd have to ask them. I, I am very confident in saying from our past experience working with police officers that they, they care about animals, and uh, where they see instances of abuse, they will deal with it appropriately, just like any other abuse. And uh, let's not forget that... Uh, 
studies show that the um, cruelty to animals can be a gateway to other crimes. For example, uh, dog fighting rings, uh, cock fighting rings. So uh, police are very well situated to deal with these situations and hopefully prevent other crimes from occurring. Can you give us an example? Well, I guess you just did with with fighting of animals and such. Uh, but are more are more of these individual type cases where somebody's just mistreating animals, or are these business related? You know, whether it's a puppy mill or a fighting ring or something like that. So, if you're talking about what the investigations principally are made up of over the course of a year, yeah, it is it is largely related to domestic animals, dogs and cats. Um, and there, there certainly are too many puppy mills in this province, and we've been addressing that over time, and it's, very, you know, new ones pop up, and it's an expensive process to deal with. There's no question. Um, but the day-to-day work involves uh, domestic animals in a home situation. Uh, is this sort of crime increasing? Are you hearing more and more of this, especially business-related? I don't think that there uh, that studies show that the the uh, crimes against animals are increasing per se, but it's always been too much, and there's always the need for proper enforcement to address it and keep it in control. How much of a cost was this for the Ontario SPCA to have resources, manpower, et cetera, uh, you know, put on to these types of cases? So it's a difficult question to answer. I can tell you that from 2012 onward, there's been a contract in place with the government providing $5.5 million in funding for uh, investigations to the OSPCA, and that money gets filtered through to their affiliated organizations. Uh, Those are other humane societies throughout um, uh, Ontario, including in the Hamilton area. And um, those funds are used for enforcement and the enforcement in, the, in that time period has um, been done keeping in mind how much funds are available. So the resources are fairly low. Uh, the, the, the number on what it would take to properly enforce is a difficult number, but it's a, a substantially higher than $5.5 million for the entire province. Are we keeping up with these cases? Are we falling behind in inspection, prosecution, etc.? So there are certain inspections that are mandated by uh, by the agreement with the government. They relate primarily to zoos and aquariums, and those inspections have uh, been on track all along. Um, w- every time we receive a complaint, so most of our work in enforcement, the vast majority of it is complaint-driven. And so if we get a complaint, we respond to a complaint. Uh, what does this do for funds coming into the Ontario SPCA? Do you expect that, that they'll reduce in any way because of this less responsibility? Do you think the publicity, the promotion could help? We're, we're hopeful that the publicity will help and that the public will see that when they donate to the OSPCA, they're not just donating for sheltering and for fostering and other initiatives, education and so on, but they're also adopting where to, to a, an organization that is one of the largest uh, charities in the country and uh, certainly animal welfare charities in the country. 
and uh, is well-placed to help animals across this province and through their donor dollars, they'll assist uh, now with this new support service because the money will not be coming from the government at all once uh, we uh, put that initiative in place. We will implement a fee-for-service depending on what the service is, and and we're still figuring out how that will work. But uh, obviously, uh, donations are a key component to assisting animals in this province and always has been. Hard to believe this organization's been around since 1873. Uh, How has the role of the SPCA changed in that time? So um, it's it's been, obviously it's grown. Uh, You know, we're in uh, dozens of communities across the province and we have networking that has increased over time in sheltering in uh, rehoming, uh, in province-wide transfer programs of animals. Um, so that's increased over time as our donor base has increased over time. Um, but the work has, uh, ha- has been steadily uh, the same type of work. It's, it's helping animals. One huge initiative that's take pla- taken place over the last several years is the increase in mobile spay and neuter clinics, which allow for decreasing in populations of dogs and cats um, that helps shelters better manage their animals and not have to resort to euthanasia for space, which is uh, something that thankfully is becoming a practice of the past. When do you hope to have a new template in place to manage all of this? So there's the interim period uh, where we'll continue to enforce to the end of the month. We hope to propose to the government how we can work before new legislation comes in during that three-month period, and we are, uh, we have an animal task force that's been put together to deal with uh, the uh, proposed changes to legislation and the recommendations we would like to see the government implement, and we'll be providing those uh, suggestions to the government in due course. All right, Brian Schiller has been with us, lawyer for the Ontario SPCA. They have turned down a government request to continue enforcing cruelty laws, but did offer a three-month extension for the other services uh, that they do provide. Brian, thanks so much for the clarity here. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.